Wow. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I've never walked up to that song before. This is great. <laughs> Thank you, FCC. Um, in a world where women preachers are kind of like, ooh, embarrassing or awful or heretical, that just felt really awesome. Thank you so much. Um, <laughs> um, so happy Palm Sunday, everyone. Oh, what a wonderful day it is, right? There's so much to celebrate, to commemorate this beginning of Holy Week. I grew up in Venezuela, and Semana Santa is a whole thing, and I kind of missed that, but we all have opportunities this week to dig in deeper to what that week was like that we hold so dear. Also, it's for those of you who have people in your lives, or maybe you are in the autism community, we're ending um, Autism Acceptance Week, which I really love. This is Autism Awareness Day, but acceptance of autism has become near and dear to me too. And as I think about Women's History Month ending, wow, we've learned a lot, right? We've thought about women, we've read about women, we've learned about the history, and at the same time, if all we do is learn, <laughs> right? Acceptance is so important. Acceptance in the church, half the church, right? Accepting and embracing the gifts of women in a world where we're seeing things like the SBC kicking churches out just for having women dare to be called pastor. Um, and we can get into all that theological stuff another day. We're not gonna talk about that, but I do love that. Um, your pastor, Eric, was so kind as to put a little soapbox out in front of me and invite me to step on, <laughs> which I gladly did. And um, today we're going to be talking about Mary, the mother of Jesus, and how her song, her Magnificat, it's called, um, influenced Jesus' social justice posture. Whew, what a mouthful. Um, but also, <laughs> what a soapbox for me to be able to step on today. Um, and we could have listed all kinds of women to discuss uh, women throughout the scriptures today. In fact, here we have a long list um, from my friend and coach, Joe Saxton, who also loves to preach about women and help us dig a little bit deeper into who they actually were, because often women in the Bible get overlooked, minimized, um, put into these small little boxes. But as we look at this list of women, I don't know about you, but like, I haven't even heard a sermon, probably I would even say on half of them, to be honest. And I didn't even hear a sermon on Junia until I myself just said, I'm going to preach one, <laughs> right? Because I mean, prominent among the apostles, hello, she deserves her own message, right? So um, as we think about this today, and as we start talking about Mary, who, you know, typically has been mentioned in a sermon here or there, it's hard to avoid Mary, the mother of Jesus. And as we think about Women's History Month, you know, it's arguably one of the most influential women in all of history, right? So <clears throat> as we think about this list, we're going to focus on Mary today and her influence. And in the next slide, I'm going to show you a picture of me when I gave birth to our now 19-year-old. He, uh, what a little shrimp back then. He was born in Thailand. That was already mentioned. Um, Chiang Mai, where my husband's parents were living at the time. My husband grew up as a missionary kid. Say hi to Jason. He's here on the front row. <laughs> Um, and my in-laws were living there. We were living and working as missionaries in Indonesia at the time and went to stay with my in-laws and to have Nico, who's now 19 and studying to be an aerospace engineer and is going to fly off one day into outer space and leave us behind. But um, <laughs> he, uh, back then, he, he just did not sleep, you guys. Oh, my goodness. I don't know. I have three. I ended up having twins later. And my mom said, you're the only person in the whole world who's ever going to say it was easier to sleep with twins than it was with just one. <laughs> 
<laughs> he's just like, I don't know. He was not interested in sleeping. But for those of you who have babies currently in your life, or you know, maybe you're a grandma, grandpa, or you have neighbors or nieces and nephews, or maybe you like volunteering in the church nursery, I'm just curious, like, what songs do you sing when you rock your babies or your friends' babies? Well, um, we, we sing lots of songs in those early days and weeks and months and really up to two years when he finally decided to sleep when we were in the Philippines. Um, we would swing him in the baby swings. We had our Indonesian friends and they would come and like Ibu Puspa would wrap him in this sarong on her body and do this little dance thing on the front porch and like it was like magic, but she wasn't around all the time and so we all had to trade off with Nico. Um, you know, but some of the songs we would sing, my husband in particular was fond of Hush Little Baby. I don't know if you're like a white American, this is probably a song you've sang too. Um, we were desperate. We sang that song so many times, I don't even know. And Jason just got kind of bored of it after a while. Because, I mean, how many times can you sing this song in the middle of the night, right? And so he turned it into sort of this 90s alternative version. Um, you can ask him to perform it for you later. <laughs> He's a wing three on the Enneagram. He can do that kind of thing. Um, but he, it didn't work, right? <laughs> because Just because he was bored with this song, the 90s alternative version really just revved Nico up, and he just would smile a lot more. But at least Jason wasn't as bored with it. Um, the other thing he would do, and you mentioned Thailand. Who's, who here has been to Thailand before? Okay, you guys need to go. It's a great place. Um, they have these things called tuk-tuks that you can ride around. You may have seen them. They're these sort of three-wheeled vehicles, and they have a very loud motorized sound. And so um, my family, my parents and younger brother had flown in from Venezuela where I grew up and they were living at the time for the birth in Chiang Mai. And we were riding around these tuk-tuks around town and Nico would actually fall asleep in the tuk-tuk. And we're like, oh my gosh, he's sleeping, you know? And so Jason got this brilliant idea when he wasn't sleeping in the middle of the night, like just make the tuk-tuk noise, right? So it's like <laughs> Honestly, we were so desperate that somebody should actually have made a sound machine with that setting on it. So if you're looking for a new product for all those sleep-deprived parents out there, that's my two cents for you, and you can name it after Nico. <laughs> Um, but yeah, as we are rocking our babies, maybe it's rocking chairs, maybe you're sitting uh, next to a baby cradle, um, maybe you have one of those cool little baby hammocks. What songs do you typically sing to the babies in your life? Songs about treetops or songs about bringing down the U.S. president? <laughs> or bringing down the Pope, <laughs> right? No, we don't do that. But apparently Mary did. This is her Magnificat, right? She finds out she's pregnant, and she starts singing these songs about bringing down the powers. Like, what in the world is this? She sings songs about how rich people are going to go away empty-handed and how the poor people are going to receive good things. So can you imagine somebody at a Phil's Coffee here on a Saturday morning with her little toddler or her little baby drinking her coffee and just, like, singing sweetly to her baby? <laughs> you know, all those rich people over in Pacific Heights or Los Altos Hills, they're going to go away empty-handed, little baby. You know, <laughs> all those homeless people on the streets of San Francisco and the Tenderloin, they're going to get all the good things. Or the asylum seekers coming across our border with just the clothes on their back, they're going to be the ones to receive all the good things. And those like rich YouTubers or cryptocurrency dudes, they're going to go away empty-handed. Okay, maybe that was a bad example because cryptocurrency is not doing so well right now. But, but you get the point. It's bizarre. It's strange. It's not what we do, right? It's also not how we really think of Mary. My goodness. Um, this next slide sort of shows that her song, it's the longest set of words, basically, in the New Testament 
um, spoken by someone other than Jesus or a couple other people. She's definitely the woman who has the most written speech time in the New Testament at this point. And so it's significant. We don't want to overlook this. Um, and she has something to say, to sing. And so I think it's important that we listen. Let's just read it together here from the Common English Bible. Mary said, with all my heart, I glorify the Lord. In the depths of who I am, I rejoice in God, my Savior. He has looked with favor on the low status of his servant. Look, from now on, everyone will consider me highly favored because the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. He shows mercy to everyone from one generation to the next who honors him as God. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered those with arrogant thoughts and proud inclinations. He has pulled the powerful down from their thrones and has lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty-handed. He has come to the aid of his servant Israel, remembering his mercy, just as he promised to our ancestors, to Abraham and to Abraham's descendants forever. All right, let's look at the next slide. I'm including quite a bit of art that's been done on Mary um, over the years, and you can imagine there's a lot. She's often portrayed as this like white lady, and what is this like, I don't know, red hair. <laughs> so people tend to see their image in her, whoever the painter is, I think, especially maybe during the Renaissance in Europe. But we often see her in paintings as this kind of submissive, and in fact, not just the paintings, we kind of imagine her that way, we might teach about her that way, as meek, as obedient, compliant, and quiet, even silent. <laughs> we look at some of our Christmas pageants. I mean, think about how many Christmas pageants you might have seen where she didn't even have any lines, you know? She just kind of like has the baby, holds the baby, and sits there by the manger. Um, as a passive person, Dr. Scott McKnight says in his book, The Real Mary, which I highly recommend, for years, the view of Mary and the church has been made unreal. Mary has become, for many, little more than a compliant resting womb for God, and she has become a stereotype of passivity in the face of challenge, of self-sacrifice at the expense of one's own soul care and of quietude to the point of hiding in the shadows of others. There's another woman, Nora Lozana Diaz, who's a professor at Hispanic Baptist Theological College, and she traces the influence of this concept in Latin America that we call Marianismo, I'm not sure how you say that in English, like Marianism maybe, um, on Latin culture, and, um, and it claims this false view of Mary, Marianismo, where it sort of oppresses women instead of challenging them to live with courage before God, as Mary herself did, in fact. It also, it's a false damage, it's a false view that damages all of us, and a more accurate view can actually encourage all of us, both women and men. And so as we go on to the next slide, um, we also think about how most sources um, have Mary around 13 to 16 years old at the time of the Immaculate Conception when she becomes pregnant with Jesus. She's an unwed teen mom, though. Like, let's be honest. Even today, this is, this is fraught with fear. And can you imagine a 13 to 16-year-old girl finding out she's pregnant in the first century Greco-Roman world and in her Jewish community? 
We know what that meant, right? And she did too. She faced possible execution by an angry mob. And what is her response? Because she had the opportunity to consent. This wasn't forced on her. And she said a very courageous yes to this exciting vocation, but scary. She was no pushover. She was bold and she was fierce, and that's likely why she was chosen for this extraordinary vocation. She was brave to dash over to her cousin Elizabeth's house. Um, she was the first to share the gospel news, which she uniquely embodied. <clears throat> In the 1980s, um, you know, the previous slide had this artwork of like a very different kind of Mary than we've often seen. But in Guatemala in the 1980s, they were very much aware that the Magnificat was a complete threat. In fact, so aware that they banned any public reciting of the Magnificat <clears throat> because it was deemed politically subversive. And they're not wrong, <laughs> right? And in fact, they're not alone. Also, India and Argentina at different points has banned the Magnificat also from being publicly read. But I don't know what your experience with the Magnificat has been as you've read this in scripture or heard it in a church. Maybe it's been like in Grace Cathedral at Advent where it's beautifully sung and so, you know, in this classical form, it's almost like this ethereal spa moment that it just feels nice. And don't get me wrong, I absolutely love that. I was at Grace Cathedral in December, this past December during Advent of several Sundays. I heard it sung in German, I didn't even speak German. And I just felt all the feels, the chill bumps, it's beautiful. But I don't think she sang it like that, <laughs> you know? I don't think she did. I think it would be more along the lines of the Women's March in San Jose and the songs that are sung, you know? Or maybe the streets of Oakland at the height of the 1960s civil rights movement with the Black Panthers. It was subversive. This song is beautiful, but it's beautiful for different reasons. It's beautiful because Mary was a young Jewish woman and she was living under both Roman oppression and patriarchy, and she was the lowly that was lifted up in the song. And it wasn't just sweet, and it wasn't polite, it was triumphant, it was subversive, it was dangerous to the powers around her, to the kings, to the religious leaders of both Nazareth and Israel, to the Roman leaders of the first century. I'm looking at you, Herod, right? A man who was so threatened by babies, babies, that he had to kill them because they were a threat to his power. What kind of a man does that? What kind of a leader is so insecure that they slaughter babies? But to eradicate this threat to his power, he did this. And this just shows us how insecure and prideful Herod actually was about his own power. And we know how dangerous it can be for insecure and panicky leaders when they abuse their power in order to retain it. But that's a sermon for another day, a soapbox for another day. <laughs> Oscar Romero, if you're familiar with him, <clears throat> was a priest and an archbishop in San Salvador, in El Salvador, and he was also a martyr. He drew a comparison between Mary and her Magnificat and the poor and the powerless in his own community. And in fact, he was assassinated in a church giving communion. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, we're all familiar with, or most of us, a German pastor and theologian, executed by the Nazis. He called the Magnificat <clears throat> the most passionate, the wildest, one might even say the most revolutionary hymns ever sung. 
Mary was brave, brave enough to dash to her cousin's house and the first to share this gospel and her own embodiment of it. And as she starts singing to Elizabeth, it kind of sweeps us up into the story in the way like a good musical does, am I right? Um, Luke's gospel begins by centering these two women. That's unusual, even today. We wouldn't write a historical narrative typically by centering two women, and yet this is Luke's choice, and I'm so grateful for it, and we're all better off for it, for his take on this. Um, In a first century uh, Greco-Roman world, this choice was unusual to say the least. What do you do when you get a new job or promotion? I don't know, maybe you're like the rest of us, you go find a friend or some friends and you pop a bottle of champagne. Well, that was, that was what Mary is doing here. She's going to her cousin Elizabeth. She's traveling up to the hill country, nauseous maybe, dehydrated. And it's worth this trip because she's ready to celebrate. And she's pregnant, so there's probably no champagne going on. <laughs> but she wants to sing because God picked her. Wow, this is such good news to share. And she says, <clears throat> what's recorded in scripture is that she's saying, God is mindful of the humble state of God's servant. Whew. She served and she got promoted. And for a woman, this is a big deal. It's a big deal for all of us. But in a world where women serve faithfully, and this would have been the same in her world, and they're never promoted in business or politics or even in church, she had served and served and God noticed her. And it's worth this trek up into the hill country and the song and dance with her cousin. Can you imagine the party? The laughter, the mouths wide open, awe and wonder about how their lives were changing. In this other slide, we see that Mary also knew the scriptures. She would have been familiar with the same Old Testament scriptures that we also read, songs of theological faith sung by many women before her. She's not the first to sing in this musical theater. Victory songs sung by women like Miriam, like Hannah, like Deborah and others. She would have known the Psalms, also sung. And the parallels between the Psalms and the Magnificat are undeniable. And she worshiped a God that we all know from these same scriptures, a God who rescues, a God who reverses, flips hierarchies, and is always on the side of the oppressed. This next slide also reminds us that she would have known the same God of Jeremiah that we know. I've been reading Jeremiah lately, and it's undeniable the way the theme of God calling God's own people to create a society of care for the vulnerable and the oppressed is the same God that she knew. She knew the God of Amos, the God who said, let justice roll down like a river and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. It's no wonder, in the next slide, I have a fun little piece of art to show you. It's no wonder Jesus was flipping tables later on, is it? With a mom like Mary. Later on, he's in the temple, the place that she had raised him to know and love the Lord, where he had gone with all his little friends to learn the scrolls and to learn who God is. And then he gets so angry that he flips tables in there because the hierarchies are abusing their power and he's flipping those hierarchies right in front of their faces because he is so upset that they would dare to create a safe harbor for those who steal in their den of thieves. 
This is a piece of artwork where I was in Abu Dhabi earlier this month. I mentor somebody who got Forbes 30 under 30 this year. Um, she's at NASA Ames Research Center and worked on the Mars rover. And um, she got invited to go to this Forbes 30, 50 summit in Abu Dhabi and bring one mentor and she chose me. I kind of feel like Mary, like I wanted to sing with my cousin Elizabeth too, that was pretty cool. Um, but who knew there was a Louvre in Abu Dhabi? I've been to the one in Paris, but apparently our tour involved and a gala um, one evening was at the Louvre and I saw this piece of art of Jesus flipping tables and I just took a picture and oh, it's, there's so much going on in it. And I think that that's kind of the deal, right? There was so much going on and Jesus was flipping this on its head in a very consistent way that we've seen throughout scripture. This is God and how God works. So Mary was seeing about the God we all know and love. Mary smiles at the future. In the next slide, I have a picture of dancing because I just think that's the scene that we're reading. She smiles at the future, Proverbs 31, woman style. She dances and sings as if dancing on graves of those who are still living. The audacity of a teen girl doing this, it's, it's what is happening, but Mary knows and she's so confident that she worships the same God of small stones that take down giants. She worships the same God who flips hierarchies and she has been chosen as the weak to shame the strong. And she's here for it with all her dancing and singing self, unable to be contained, bursting to share this good news with her cousin Elizabeth in the hills. Okay, now I'm not a Sound of Music fan, but I also cannot deny the musical theater vibes going on right now. I have no idea if Luke was being prophetic about this or not. But Mary is not the only woman to sing theological songs, as we've mentioned. We have Miriam, we have Hannah, we have Deborah, my personal favorite, of God fighting on their behalf, behalf of God's people, and overcoming impossible odds. Women in particular would have noticed these things under systems of oppression with a layer of patriarchy on top. Barbara Reed says, these songs are not sweet lullabies. They are militant songs that exult in the saving power of God that has brought defeat to those who subjugated God's people. In the next slide, we see that Mary was favored. And what does that mean? Well, she didn't just think with a human perspective. God had given her something extra in the way that prophets, even today, can interpret current events for us and help us to see God's movement in the world and the purpose and the liberation or captives are being set free, like the song we all sang together earlier. Mary sees that life will overpower death in the greatest of reversals that we'll celebrate next week, the resurrection. Dr. Nijay Gupta, author of the book that just came out a few weeks ago, Tell Her Story, How Women Led, Taught, and Ministered in the Early Church, says, Mary's song of praise amplifies how God's singular act in the life of a Jewish woman has cosmic repercussions. By raising her voice in song, Mary harmonizes her own story with the story of Israel. By speaking out her own situation, she speaks on behalf of all of Israel and draws from Israel's scriptural songbook to do so. In the story of Jesus' birth, Mary is a spokesperson for Israel and for Luke's larger theme of reversal throughout the gospel. In the next slide, it's a reminder, any of us who are moms, if you're a mom, raise your hand. Hey, shout out to the moms. We wear lots of hats, typically. That's just the gig, right? And Mary would have been no different. 
Um, and in Mary's song, one of the longest speeches in the gospel other than Jesus, we see her, her take on a particular role that she had. But as we think about the ways that she was involved in Jesus's life alone, even that she wore multiple hats, even with her own son. So it's, it's interesting to consider how Joseph um, really disappears without a trace after Jesus is 12. His name's only mentioned a couple times in Jesus's ministry after that. But Mary, very much present and very much there and involved as his closest family member. And it's, it's interesting, right? It's not a dad, it's not an uncle, it's not a grandpa. She was his prominent mentor. And she tells Jesus to perform his first miracle. I, I just love that story, I think it's so awesome. Um, she's telling him to turn the water into wine at the wedding at Canaan. She's telling everybody else, like, you gotta watch this, it's gonna happen. And um, she's seen his superpowers already. She's like, cannot wait to show him off. She's a very proud mom. Um, she's been mentoring him in a very close relationship all his life. And she knows Jesus better than anyone else. She's at the cross when so many of the men are gone. Jesus' final thoughts on the cross, in fact, were of his beloved mother. And he asked John to adopt her and care for her. They were close. Nietzsche Gupta also says to Jesus, Mary was far more than just the woman that had birthed him. She was caregiver, teacher, companion, disciple, mourner, and eventually church leader. She was with him through thick and thin, and she may have been the last person to look Jesus in the eyes when he breathed his last. She was there for that first breath in the stable in Bethlehem. And she was there for what she perceived at the time to be his last breath at Calvary. In this next slide, we see, you know, there's popular stereotypes at the time of women when Mary would have been alive, that women were nagging and unintelligent. Jesus clearly saw women very differently, didn't he? With a strong and smart and empowered mom like Mary, we can see why. He obeyed and was influenced by his mom. Mary was favored with God and filled with the Holy Spirit, according to the scriptures. Women, in fact, paved the way for Jesus, and they played strategic roles in Jesus' life. Both his mom and her cousin Elizabeth, who let Mary live with her for three months of her pregnancy until she gave birth to John the Baptist. And then Anna prophesied over baby Jesus in the temple. We named our daughter after her, she's amazing. Jesus was surrounded by faithful women who not only prayed for him and prophesied, but they set Jesus on his path. In the next slide, we see that Jesus' concern for social justice was actually rooted in his understanding of God's plan for the world. And he saw himself as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies of the coming of the Messiah, who would bring justice and peace to the world, and indeed he was. And his mother would have taught him about this from the scriptures and helping him understand who he was. He saw himself as the embodiment of what Mary sings about in the Magnificat drawn from the Old Testament herself and the Old Testament prophecies in particular, which emphasized God's concern for the poor and the oppressed. But Jesus's view of social justice was not only about helping the poor and the marginalized. He also went further, did that deeper message and work of challenging the structures of power and privilege that kept them ongoingly oppressed. Jesus spoke out and had his harshest words to the religious leaders and the wealthy elites who oppressed the poor and exploited them for their own gain. And this is not inconsistent with what I'm reading in Jeremiah and what we've read in the Psalms. This is very consistent with what Jesus would have been reading in the scrolls. 
So he challenged them to repent of their sins and turn to God's way of both justice and mercy. In the next slide, we see that Jesus saw women who had insight into the plight of their daily lives. When we think about how often Jesus talked about women and interacted with women, it's significant and a lot if we're just given that lens and paying attention. He, he taught about the kingdom of God and used women as illustrations in several of those metaphors. For example, a woman adding yeast to dough. Um, even the cooking aspect of that, how would he have known? How would he have known how that happened? Um, even some people would say, as he's doing his miracle of feeding, uh, in more than one situation, there's feeding moments, that that was women's work. How did he know about this? He also talked about women, um, a woman searching for a lost coin as a metaphor for the kingdom. He often talked about widows. He taught us to pray by the persistent widow. And he was attentive to the poor widow who came up and gave her only two coins, and he knew that that's all she had. He cared for women, the woman caught in adultery. He protected her from being executed by an angry mob. He had compassion on Mary and Martha when their brother Lazarus had died and indeed wept with them. He healed a 12-year-old girl. He healed a woman bleeding for 12 years and a demon-possessed girl. Jesus had deep theological conversations with the Samaritan woman. And he didn't treat women just as sinners or to be saved or damsels in distress uh, in need of a rescue. And he was the savior. Take note, everybody. <laughs> he respected their intelligence in the conversation. And he was attentive to the Samaritan woman's hard life of being abandoned or widowed or both um, by many men. He reveals himself as the Messiah to her in a deep theological conversation where he respected her intellect and her deep the theological knowledge, which was vast, apparently. And then she's preaching to her whole village because this is truly good news. Who wouldn't want to share that? Jesus was ministered to by women as well. The woman with the alabaster jar anoints him as king with oil, with her tears and perfume, which is a great reversal of the Pharisees who had invited him over and apparently had failed in showing him proper hospitality and warmth and respect, according to Luke. In Mark, a woman with an alabaster jar is commended for anointing Jesus for burial. And we read in Mark, he says, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what has done, been done by her will be told in memory of her. But is it? And do we? Indeed, women did go to the tomb to anoint Jesus while the men hid in fear. And we wouldn't have the gospel at all. We wouldn't be celebrating this week if the women had done nothing. Right? Women were involved, and Mary was among them and prominent among them in many instances. She not only was filled with the Holy Spirit when she was given um, the Immaculate Conception of Jesus, but she's also present in the upper room at Pentecost when others are receiving the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had already overshadowed her and come on her, um, but she's present for those tongues of fire at Pentecost as well. God made an intentional choice in choosing Mary to be the one to have this vocation of playing all the roles that she played in Jesus' life. And mentor and teacher would have been one of the key ones. Like most moms, she probably taught him to speak, to eat, to walk, to play, to pray, and probably to sing. Mary's Magnificat is reflected in the life and ministry of Jesus of setting captives free. It's good news for the poor. 
her song and Jesus' life are their fulfillment of many prophecies. The theme of the Old Testament scriptures, the reflection of God's heart that beats towards justice. And this next slide, I'm curious to know, how are you seeing elements of Mary's Magnificat at work in our life today and God's movement in the world, in your world? As she sang about powers being pulled down from their thrones, powerful powers, do you see that? I've seen a few things in the news in the last couple days. Lowly lifted up, do we see that? Are we a part of that work? Are we joining this work? Do we see the arrogant scattered? And how are you praying and living a life that works toward justice in the ways that Mary sang about and Jesus embodied and lived out all the way through to the end? In this deep theological song about God and Jesus talking about setting captives free. Just three chapters later in Luke, Jesus walks into the temple and rolls the scrolls and reads from Isaiah 61. A scroll he may have heard his mom talk about, or he may have been reading that day in the temple at age 12 when he got lost. He reads a passage that reminds us a great deal of Mary's Magnificat, in fact, and it's also reflective of his own life and work of justice. So let's listen to Isaiah 61 and, and, um, and pray that we will live lives that proclaim and live out this truth. Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Lord God's spirit is upon me because the Lord has anointed me and he has sent me to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim release for the captives and liberation for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and a day of vindication for our God to comfort all who mourn, to provide for Zion's mourners, to give them a crown in place of ashes, oil of joy in place of mourning, a mantle of praise in place of discouragement. They will be called oaks of righteousness, planted by the Lord to glorify himself. They will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will restore formerly deserted places. They will renew ruined cities places deserted in generations past. As we look at this next slide and think about what today is, Jesus on a donkey, as we mentioned earlier, not a chariot, not a really beautiful white horse with a purple robe and a crown. It was intentional because Jesus is not an, a king who's in an ivory tower. This theme of reversal, this theme of flipping hierarchies was always and always has been and always will be the king and the God that we serve. And following this type of king means changes in our own lives in ways that Mary sang about and taught Jesus about. So may we be people of reversal, people of new birth, and people of resurrection in ways that Mary's song and Jesus' very life, death, and resurrection compel us to do so.